we've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Hey, welcome everybody. Steve with Sense of Fidelity. I'm coming at you with our continuous series on the councils of the church with Dr. Alan Fimister. Coming at you. It looks like it's sunny there behind you. Yeah, I think it might just be the direction of the house. <laughs> it was a cool 90 degrees where I'm at right now. No, it's terrible. Actually, it is very, very hot. It's very unpleasant. I'm used to my nice, soggy little island. This is very difficult for me. <laughs> well, today we're bringing you the first Lateran Council. So... Doctor, sure, sure. Um, well, um, so it's it's a big a big jump from uh, the fourth Council of Constantinople to the first Lateran Council. It's one of it's the the third longest gap between two ecumenical councils. I think I remember that rightly. Well, not two ecumenical. So. So there's, if you think about it, there's the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem, and then slightly less than 300 years later, you have the First Council of Nicaea, the First Ecumenical Council. And then they are relatively frequent intervals, about 100 years or so, or sometimes less, of, of the first eight ecumenical councils after that. And uh, and then you've got about 250 years before Lateran I. And then there's lots of councils again, sometimes just every few decades, really, for the in, the in the high Middle Ages, as they call it, the sort of glorious, most medieval part of the Middle Ages. Um, and then, uh, and then you've got Trent, uh, which ends in the 1560s, and uh, and then you don't have um, you don't have another ecumenical council until Vatican I in 1870. Well, it, it opens in 1868 or 1869 or something. Mm -hmm. So. Um, uh, yeah, so so this is one of the bigger gaps, right? And the reason why there's such a big gap is because this is a huge seismic shift um, uh, in in the world, in 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 and in the church uh, between the shift of, of power between in the Christian world from the East and the the surviving Roman Empire, what what modern historians call the Byzantine Empire. Uh, sort of falls away as the most powerful force in the Christian world in favour of of Western Europe, and um, and 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 all sorts of things go hand in hand with that. But one of them is that from the 12th century onwards, ecumenical councils start being held by popes rather than emperors, and uh, and they're held in the West and they're held in Latin, and so we've got these 12 Latin councils and these eight Greek councils at the beginning so um now we looked at uh, last time about how um how charlemagne the coronation of charlemagne 800 had kind of shattered the common worldview or the more or less shared worldview of um of the latins and the greeks uh, i should say that the the byzantines or the romans would have been very irritated to hear us call them greeks uh, and 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 after after Constantine's uh, sorry Charlemagne's coronation, uh, we did start calling them Greeks quite often, and they did get very annoyed about it, um, because uh, the, the Byzantines, uh, when you said Greek or Hellene, uh, Hellene being the Greek word for Greek, um, uh, that for them that meant pagan, 
so they were romans and christians and hellenes was what they called pagans so um if the so but after we claimed we the latins claimed to have uh, the emperor now in in the west instead um we started to call their guy the emperor of constantinople that annoyed him quite a lot anyway or the emperor of new rome so the emperor of new rome was the least offensive although still irritating emperor of constantinople was a little bit more offensive um emperor of the greeks uh, is like very offensive and uh, king of the greeks that is unbelievably so so a variety of possible but um but unless you called him emperor of the romans basically uh, they were not happy um and uh, so you've got this kind of running sore going on between the east and the west um from this point onwards and as i say um i very much suspect i'm not alone in this that the Phocian schism which we were discussing last time which was sort of but not really entirely resolved by the fourth council of constantinople uh was really a kind of outbreak it was able to able to burst into flame because of uh this this subterranean rumbling annoyance more than annoyance anger and bitterness about what 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 we tried to do in 800 but um that didn't um it didn't uh irrevocably destroy everything until the 11th century when um when when what what's generally thought of as the great schism which happened in uh um uh 1054 uh, broke out and was never fully properly resolved thereafter and uh, part of the reason for that was that everything fell to bits in the west in the meantime and the byzantines had a great period so they had their kind of golden age their post classical golden age so so really from 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 the 4th century it had been down 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 for the roman empire um and they'd never really managed to fully you know occasional slight haltings of the decline but nothing major really just smaller and smaller and smaller until this dynasty founded by basil the basil the macedonian right who we talked about last time uh, the one who was a bit like a sort of circus strongman um uh, the one who killed michael the drunkard who may or may not have been fairly described as michael the drunkard and um so his dynasty um uh it was a huge success the macedonian dynasty and and the the empire started getting bigger and bigger again and uh, up until uh, the second to last male ruler in that line who was uh, the emperor basil the second who reigned from uh 1076 until 1125 so he was around not sorry, not 1066 976 to 1025 who he was around for a long time um and uh and he was um he's known as basil the bulgar slayer um because uh, uh, one of the many people that he beat big time in battle with the bulgars and um, he was very very nasty to them on one occasion he he defeated this bulgarian army took vast numbers of them prisoner and uh, and remember it's the bulgar khan all those centuries before who'd well who'd uh, ripped out who turned who turned the roman emperor's head into a into a goblet um so there's a lot of lot of bad feeling there basil the second um uh, he got all these prisoners and he he blinded all of them. I mean, there were like thousands of these prisoners and he blinded 99 in every hundred and then let one of them keep one eye so that they could all hold hands in groups of a hundred and, uh, and go back to the Bulgarian capital. And the, the king of the Bulgars, when, when they arrived, died of, died of a heart attack from the shock of seeing, seeing his, his was army. There any, was there any marches on that one? <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, yeah, so so I mean they're ruthless, but they did they were doing pretty well. Like they got Nazareth back at one point, and they had Antioch back for a good long while. And um, so I mean the Byzantine Empire was really doing very nicely. Thank you in the tenth century. But the uh, but the the new Western version of the Roman Empire, led up by Charlemagne, completely blew up uh, in the reign of Charlemagne's son. So the, one of the problems was that um, uh, there was a tradition among the Franks that they always divided the inheritance equally between the surviving sons. And um, Charlemagne had actually been planning to do this himself. And, and he was going to divide his his kingdom up between his three surviving sons. But two of them died. So in the end, it was passed on intact to his surviving son, Louis the Pious. But um, uh, Louis the Pious had two wives and the second and younger wife, I don't mean two simultaneously, sequentially, as a result of death, not, not uh, dodgy Henry VIII type goings on. Um, and, um, and, and, and there was a son born to the second wife and he tried to alter the deal about how he's gonna divide between his sons and that led to a huge civil war. And uh, there are all sorts of reasons why why the Frankish Empire imploded. I mean, partly that the, you know, the model by which it had in, increased in size to the point where Charlemagne became Roman Emperor um, was based on conquering things outside itself and that handing goodies to your followers. So when it got to the kind of largest size it could reasonably get to, given the kind of level of sophistic bureaucratic sophistication and technology that they had, then that model by its by its own logic implodes into a civil war if you see what i mean so so that was not very good and um so eventually it gets divided up uh in the 840s it gets divided up uh into three different kingdoms um which are really the ancestors of the states of modern europe uh, so the so the western part of it is francia western francia francia occidentalis uh is given to charles the bald um, one of Charlemagne's grandsons, and that is where France comes from. The modern country of France is derived from Charles the Bald chunk of Charlemagne's empire. And then the eastern side is given to Louis the German, uh, who you will not be surprised to learn is the ancestor of the modern German state. Um, but then down the middle, uh, you had this kind of strip, the eldest one who was supposed to get it all um, uh, and who got the imperial title, who's called Lothar. He got kind of roughly this middle strip that's kind of like the Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, French provinces of Alsace-Lorraine, Switzerland, and northern Italy, roughly. Um, uh, this middle bit, middle Francia. And that was totally um, impossible to defend. So, so that didn't really survive. Although the, the province of Lorraine in France actually means the kingdom of Lothar, and it's named after... Lothar's son, Lothar, uh, who, who got, uh, but it, it got pummeled between the Eastern and Western. So that's why you've got these little states in the middle between France and Germany, if you see what I mean, because that middle kingdom was not, not, not defensible. So uh, Europe um, degenerated into civil war, and at the same time, uh, the Vikings from Scandinavia, who had not been evangelized, um, uh, they came pouring in in their longboats and uh, they were much scarier and nastier because the Germanic barbarians who originally brought down the Western Roman Empire, they were already Aryan Christians on the whole by the time they, uh, by the time they took over the Roman provinces, whereas the Vikings were absolutely terrifying, uh, you know, completely awful, you know, just 
kill, burn, rape, pillage. That was it. That's their modus operandi. And um, so, so that that was a bit of a nightmare as well. And um, we talked last time about how the papacy was in trouble because uh, they'd got this state in central Italy given to them by Charlemagne's dad. And they thought that um, that was going to kind of defend them from domination by external temporal rulers, which it did. But it, it caused them to become the puppets of the internal temporal rulers, the local Roman nobility. So from um, from the poisoning of John VIII until the uh, election of Saint Leo IX, um, who uh, took possession of the Holy See in 1049, uh, there was a, a pretty dreadful period in the, in fact, the worst period in the entire history of the papacy in terms of immorality, chaos, etc., etc. And the very worst, the first half of that period was the worst half um, up until the um, 960s, uh, when the the then king of the German bit of Charlemagne's empire, um, uh, Otto the Great. He, he came down to Italy and he took over the northern Italian fragment of that middle bit and he uh, had himself crowned uh, emperor. And in fact, there hadn't been an emperor for a long time, you know, getting on for 50 years or something, um, uh, in the middle there. The, the imperial title had become, this revived imperial title had become a bit meaningless. It ended just being being held onto by quite minor Italian rulers, and then it just went went out of use altogether. And then this German uh, ruler Otto the Great, he managed to get himself crowned emperor, uh, and he sort of permanently annexed northern Italy to the German bit of the fragments of Charlemagne's empire. And from that point onwards until um, the 19th century. Um, the ruler of Germany was always um, was always the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, always had the, the, this this revived imperial title that had been created by uh, Leo the Third and Charlemagne was held by the the German ruler. Now, uh, but it's a bit weird because he's not really the um, he's not really ruling the the, the Roman Empire. It, um, if you if again, this is difficult concept to explain but we, we talked previously about how after the western empire fell the theory in the west was that they were holding their territories that they ruled these kings as sort of franchise owners from the mother company based in constantinople so you had the roman state the roman polity with its capital in constantinople with the ceo uh, the emperor and then he had his franchises uh, in the West, which which were represented by the different kingdoms in the West. And then, as we talked about last time, the Franks had, as it were, bought up all the other franchises, or rather conquered all the other franchises in the West, so that they had more, you know, more of the business than the original parent company. Um, and, and then they claimed the title of emperor in 800. So... But there wasn't... But they didn't own the parent company, if you see what I mean. The parent company was still... The one based in Constantinople. So, so what happened was it became the convention in the West that the owner of the largest franchise, which is the German bit of uh, of that big agglomeration of franchises that, that Charlemagne had put together, uh, would go go down to Rome and get the title of Roman Emperor from the Pope. But he, well, there wasn't any actual polity that he ruled that was the Roman Empire. There was just the, the German kingdom. Uh, although it gets called 
the empire more and more as a sort of convenient term but really what he is is he's the king of the germans and then he goes down to uh, rome and he gets crowned by the pope and he starts calling himself emperor of the romans from that point onwards so if you look at these german rulers in the middle ages you'll always have like a date when they became the king of germany and then sometimes quickly afterwards sometimes not sometimes decade or something or more they managed to get down to italy central italy negotiate with the pope get themselves crowned and from that point onwards they're emperor hmm. um but they don't really like that because they like the prestige of being emperor so they they like calling themselves king of the romans in order to try and make them sound roman right from the start but the popes are not always happy with that um uh, so for example pope gregory the seventh who was particularly unenthusiastic about emperors um uh, he he would always call um i think it's rex teutonicorum king of the germans he would call the the uncrowned imperial candidate just to rub in the fact that he wasn't the roman emperor um uh, but yeah that varied uh, as to but nevertheless so uh after otto so there's just an unbroken sequence of terrible popes from the poisoning of john the john the eighth until uh, otto's crowned he then deposes the guy who crowned him john the 12th who was elected pope when he was 18 um uh turned the lateran palace into a brothel and died while committing adultery yeah i was gonna um, say he it, wasn't a good dude <laughs> um and uh, i think gibbon edward gibbon who albeit is is quite anti-catholic mostly because he converted to Catholicism when he was a student and then apostatized because his dad threatened to disinherit him. So he had to explain why he was so pathetic by being very anti-Catholic for the rest of his life. But he um, but he, he says, I think, if I remember right, he says about John the Twelfth, the reader will learn with surprise that virgins were deterred from praying at the shrine of St. Peter for fear of being deflowered in the act by his successor. So uh, that's yeah, so not good. Um, and uh, there's this guy, uh, Luterprand of Cremona, uh, who's, a, who's a, a bishop, slash diplomat um of that period and he has some pretty grim descriptions of john the 12th's antics imagine and, the blogosphere then well indeed yes and uh, and he um he uh, he is this great list of all the terrible things that he did you know sort of diabolism witchcraft adultery um you know uh, um rape um uh, god knows what else and then the last thing on the list that i remember rightly is and sometimes he would even omit to say matins you're like so, so that's the climactic so you're thinking like how how bad are things now if even at the darkest era of the papacy the popes only occasionally omitted to say matins <laughs> but uh, anyway yes um so uh so from that point onwards you generally had if the emperor was so the emperor really controlled germany and then he kind of had a nominal rule over northern Italy, but he didn't really kind of really rule it unless he was absolutely there with a big German army, in which case, yes, everyone did what he said to, until he left, and then they got back to doing whatever the hell they liked, as the Italians generally do. Um, and um, and uh, so, so when the German emperor, and that's kind of why these Italian little city-state republics that were so important in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance arose because they, they, they created their own little little governments uh in all these towns it was the it was the it was the one big surviving urban area in the west was italy everywhere else had gone back to becoming very agrarian during the period of the barbarian invasions so but anyway so while the german emperors were down there well they weren't the german emperor's misleading term but while the while the the king of germany slash holy roman emperor slash king of the romans depending on what he was being called at the time and what whether he'd been crowned by the pope or not while he was down there in northern italy um uh 
they would make sure the popes were reasonably okay guys. Uh, and as soon as they left, the dodgy local Roman nobility would get some some uh, deranged teenager back into the uh, into the onto the papal throne. Um, so so it's a weird period. The second half of this dreadful period is is one where you do have these kind of German bureaucratic respectable popes alternating with with uh, with the kind of sex, drug, and rock and roll popes. And uh, and this carries on until um, the period 1046 to 1048, roughly. And it sort of climaxes in this dreadful pope, uh, Benedict the Ninth, who um, uh, who sells the papacy to his uncle, abdicates, is deposed. He actually he has his pontificate occurs on three different occasions because because his, his pontificate is so ridiculous, um, and. Um, uh, and uh, but eventually they finally get rid of the guy, and um, and uh, this um, Alsatian, not in the sense of the dog, but of somebody from Alsace, um, uh, uh, is is nominated by the Emperor Henry the Third to go down and become Pope Leo the Ninth, mm-hmm. and um, and he uh, he on his way down he uh, bumps into a. Uh, this guy Hildebrand, who's a deacon from Rome, and he has—he was a friend of Pope Gregory the Sixth. Pope Gregory the Sixth was the uncle of the terrible Pope, uh, and he actually bought the papacy off um, uh, off uh, Benedict the Ninth um, because he saw his nephew was so terrible. And his nephew is such a bad man that he'd probably be willing to sell the papacy. And if that's the only way of getting the idiot out of out of the throne of St. Peter, then it's worth it. So Gregory VI, who was actually a good guy, bought the papacy of his nephew in order to save us all from this dreadful man. And um, uh, But then that became a bit of a problem because that's simony, right? And one of the major abuses in, in, in the church at that time was simony selling... Uh, ecclesiastical offices mm-hmm. um, and so he was kind of compromised he couldn't really be the leader of a great reform because he was compromised by having bought papacy even though he did it for the best of reasons so he and he accepted that and he abdicated and he went off uh, to um, northern Europe uh, and he took his pal Hildebrand the deacon with him who felt sorry for him was there anybody Hilde- that said later that he was the true pope five years well, later yeah, he- he is listed as a as a true pope. No, I mean after the next one. So no, no, no. He's not the real pope now. He's still the pope. <laughs> oh well, no, because he himself he he voluntarily abdicated because he because he thought you know this was he accepted that this the, sh- the shady circumstances in which he became pope were, albeit he did it for a good reason. It was still a bad thing. So yeah. you know, um, so Hildebrand had been knocking around there in northern Europe, um, possibly had become a monk of Cluny. Now we'll get to Cluny and why it's so important in a sec. But um, it's not clear if he was or not. There's some claims that he was. But anyway, Hildebrand bumped into uh, Leo IX, who'd just been nominated by by the Emperor Henry III and was on his way down to Rome. And Hildebrand persuaded him that he shouldn't treat himself as Pope until he'd been properly elected according to the proper traditional rules by the Roman clergy and people in Rome. So he didn't, and he went down very humbly in sort of pilgrim fashion and submitted himself to election by the, the people and the clergy of Rome, and they elected him. And he and so his pontificate, and he brought Hildebrand with him, and his pontificate is seen as the beginning of this thing called the Gregorian Reform Movement, which is this massive movement to reform the church after this terrible, terrible period of corruption and collapse. 
and um, uh, and it's called the Gregorian Reform Movement after Pope Gregory the Seventh, mm-hmm. um, who is in fact Hildebrand. So so mm-hmm. ma- many pontificates later, Deacon Hildebrand was actually elected pope, and but he'd been the kind of guy behind the throne, as it were, um, promoting the theory of this reform the whole time. So the whole reform movement is named after him, and the uh, and his pontificate became the period of the greatest tension um, uh, with the lay power over the ideals of the Gregorian reform movement. But the, but the first pontificate of the Gregorian reform movement is the pontificate of Gregory the Ninth, which begins with his arrival in Rome in 1049. So Cluny, why is Cluny important? So in the middle of the most terrible part of the most terrible period, more or less, um, in, 10, in 910, uh, a Duke William of Aquitaine uh, founded uh, this abbey of Cluny in Burgundy in France. And um, now now Charlemagne, uh, once he became Roman emperor, he was very keen on making everything be really Roman and making everything sort of uniform. And we, in a way, we get the sort of Roman rite in its, uh, in its current form, by which I mean the extraordinary form. I don't mean the, the 1960s thing. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but the... the um, uh, uh, yeah, um, so so in the form that it existed, as far as we can tell, from the reign of Charlemagne until the 1960s, or arguably till now, is um, uh, is is really a result of Charlemagne's desire for Romanness and uniformity, because he 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 in, he investigated. He wanted to know what the Roman way of mass being celebrated was, and and that was investigated, and um, and that led to a sort of gathering of liturgical texts and a crystallization of the of of the of the form of the Roman rite. But uh, one of the other uh, effects of this was he became worried about the fact that all the different monasteries were all following lots of different rules or just making it up as they went along and all that kind of thing. And he wanted them to be uniform and he wanted them to be Roman. And so he decided because Gregory the Great is like the greatest of all popes, as we've mentioned in the past, um, and Gregory the Great uh, is is the the source for the life of, of um St. Benedict, mm-hmm. uh, book two of Gregory the Great's Dialogues is entirely devoted to St. Benedict and what a great guy he was. Um, and so uh, St. Benedict is seen as the ultimate Roman monk. And so the rule of St. Benedict is seen as the ultimate Roman rule for monks. And so there are a number of synods that Charlemagne holds and that Louis the Pious, his son, holds, in which it becomes established uh, in the West that you're only a monk if you're a Benedictine, i.e. you're only a monk if you follow the rule of St. Benedict. <laughs> and, um, and, they, and they can't get rid of the rule of St. Augustine because he's too prestigious. That'd be a bit silly to say, oh, it's no good. This rule of St. Augustine, who's that Augustine guy anyway? You can't say that. It's ridiculous. So, but they insist that people who follow the rule of St. Augustine call themselves canons rather than monks. So they really insist on this. So there's this great, this period from around, you know, the this apogee of Charlemagne's reign at 800 until um, the 12th century, really, when Benedict, the rule of St. Benedict followed very strictly is is the ultimate ideal for the West, but that's not what's actually happening in the West. Um, what's happening is married lay abbots who are controlling abbeys because they want to control the property of the abbey and all that kind of stuff, and lots of, of very poor observance and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's all dominated by the families who donated the original um, the original land. Um, but the uh, 
but this this a line is drawn onto this with the founding of Cluny in 910 by this Duke William of Aquitaine, because Duke William of Aquitaine arranges for Cluny to be immune from two different types of uh, interference in inverted commas. First of all, he says that he and his family will not have any power over the monks. They'll just follow the rule of St. Benedict, elect their own abbot, and, and, and that's what they're going to do. And they're going to pray for William of Aquitaine and his descendants, but they're not going to, but, but William's family aren't going to control the abbey. So they're going to be genuinely autonomous. Um, so that, that's a really big deal. Also, he manages to arrange um, for Clooney to be immune from the power of the local bishops and only subject to the Pope. And what that does, is it basically creates the first ever religious order in the sense that we understand it now. Mm -hmm. So back then, religious order meant an order in society, like a group in society, like, uh, you know, like, you know, knights or virgins or kings or whatever would be an order. And a religious order would be an order that took vows, mm -hmm. right, vows to God. Um, and so it didn't mean some kind of a big organization with uh, with an HQ in Rome and, and all wearing a similar outfit. That that's 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 a result of Clooney, basically that that conception of what we mean by religious order, because prior to Clooney, um, an abbot in one diocese couldn't start telling a religious house in another diocese what to do, because that would be violating the jurisdiction of the bishop of that other diocese. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But now, because Clooney's immune from the diocesan bishop's authority and only subject to the Pope, it means that Clooney can set up little satellite houses. And the reason why that happens is because everyone sees that Clooney's very observant. They're particularly punctilious about the liturgy. Um, and uh, and they they want that. They think, well, these useless monks who don't follow the rule and whose abbot is a layman, they're supposed to be praying for the souls of my ancestors. But that's a bit useless, isn't it? I mean, God's not going to be interested in their prayers. So they think we we want an abbey like that. We want we want an abbey like that in next to us praying for us instead. Mm -hmm. So they ask Clooney to send out chaps to reform. Uh, their local abbeys all over Europe, and um, and then when they finish reforming them, the Clunia, the Cluniacs, as they're called, the, the monks from Cluny, they don't restore an abbot to that abbey. They just leave a prior, and a prior is appointed, but is like the number two to the abbot. But he's appointed by the abbot. He isn't elected by the monks. So they made all the monks in the reformed house be monks of Cluny, even though they lived hundreds of miles from Cluny or whatever. And, and then they'd be governed by a prior nominated by the abbot of Cluny. So for the first time, you have this kind of federation, albeit it's a kind of imperial mm -hmm. federation, but a federation of religious houses crossing over dust and boundaries. And so Cluny becomes this big ideal. But And, it, and, and it's, it's Cluny that inspires the Gregorian reform movement and... Um, Lots of the uh, of the big figures of Gregorian reform are either monks of Cluny or they're monks of Monte Cassino, the original uh, Abbey of St Benedict, which itself is reformed in the light of the ideals of Cluny. So Monte Cassino and Cluny become these big centres of, of of this ideal of monastic reform. But it also part of the ideal because of William of Aquitaine's self denying ordinance. Part of the ideal is that, that the laity not be able to interfere in inverted commas in the uh, in the elections of not just abbots but bishops because the, what the Gregorian reform movement is is a, is a translation of the ideals of Cluny into the organization of the cl clergy as opposed to the religious mm -hmm. and um, and part of that becomes a, a great hostility to the involvement of lay people in the election of bishops now of course uh, the reason for that is because the laity 
have the, the lay role in the election of bishops has become particularly in Rome, but elsewhere as well, has basically become essentially appointment by local aristocrats or appointment by the local king or by the the, the Roman aristocracy or whatever. It's not really the the you know the the um, it's not really the kind of election uh, popular election that existed in the ancient world, albeit they could get pretty rowdy as well. Um, uh, but as as a result, this this idea that, that the lay role so it's, it's a bit of a poison chalice it, it should be said however that the that the um the actual leaders of the gregorian reform movement at the time in the 11th century they didn't say that the that the people shouldn't have a role in electing the bishop um but it eventually goes that way and of course they never really had much of a role anyway north of the alps because the idea of the people voting for the bishop is very much an urban idea you know, it, it, it happens in a big city with a big cathedral with a square in front of it. If it's a massive diocese in England or northern France or something, and people aren't living in the uh, people aren't living in cities, they're, they're 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 peasants out in the countryside. So, so in in those places, it had never that the old patristic model had never really been established anyway. But um, but uh, yeah, so so the. Um, these, uh, as a result of the intervention of these emperors from Germany, you eventually get a sequence of of morally good, reform-minded, zealous popes, inspired by the ideals of Cluny, and uh, and they want to get rid of improper lay interference uh, in the appointment of bishops, and uh, but it, that 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 becomes. Uh, that, that paradoxically or ironically turns round so that it causes a huge conflict between the emperors from Germany and the popes because the, 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 these emperors who'd created this reform movement in a certain sense were now seen as objectionable by the reform movement because the idea that the emperor could just appoint the pope was seen as just another instance of this inappropriate lay interference in, in Episcopal elections. So um, uh, the... Um, it's remarkable in some ways that the that these popes, these reform popes, very rapidly acquire a, a very strong sense of the infallibility of the pope, of the indefectibility of the Roman Church, of the importance of of, of this uh, of this um, of these free elections, but also of the power of the pope to just drop in a bishop from anywhere in order to deal with with inappropriate elections. Um, and uh, and. And it's not no coincidence that in the reign of um, Pope Leo IX, the Great Schism with the Byzantine Church happens, because the papacy is now throwing its weight around and is very conscious of its papal powers and prerogatives, and uh, and this leads to a a clash with Byzantium, which still considers um, still considers the Pope the Latins in general to be this pathetic barbarous people that they're not really interested in, and uh, and that they're very grudgingly. Um, accepting the nominal seniority of the Bishop of Rome. And, uh, and there's a sort of shift. The, the early emperors in Constantinople always used to refer to Rome as the elder and the greater Rome. And they start changing that to the elder and the lesser Rome. Um, uh, so so they're, they're no longer being properly deferential to the original capital of the empire. And uh, so it would take too long to go into the circumstances which triggered off the excommunications of um, 1054, um, but they, 
but but it was it was the kind of the zeal and sense of their prerogatives that suddenly manifested itself um, in this these Gregorian reform popes, which uh, helped to push the question to to a, a huge row. It seems to be that um, there'd already been some kind of quarrel that's lost in the mists of of that last period of papal anarchy because. Already for a while before that, the schism of 1054, the Byzantines had stopped praying for the Pope in the liturgy, but and we've never really been able to put our finger put our fingers on why that happened. Nobody seems to have been lost as to why it happened. But it is interesting, you know, we talked last time about how the filioque wasn't said in the liturgy in Rome because they didn't sing the creed mm -hmm. in the liturgy in Rome. And um that ended in the year 1014 because uh, the emperor Henry II, Saint Henry II, um, uh, he came to Rome to be crowned uh, by the Pope. And um, I don't know, they like uh, the liturgy committee or something started discussing the arrangements for Karen. the coronation. And Henry II was like, why is there no creed? I love the creed. I want the creed in there. And, um, and so they were kind of like, oh, okay, well, we don't really do that. And he's like, oh, it's no, you can't have a mass without a creed. And uh, so they put the creed in to please Henry II. And because the only versions of the creed for singing in the mass were from the Franks and they all had the filioque in. Um, and probably because of the, you know, growing estrangement between East and West, they didn't remember as they didn't know like Leo the third did back in 800, that this was going to cause a huge row with the Byzantines. So they just sang the creed with the filioque in it and never looked back. But of course, from the Byzantine point of view, that's kind of because, because the filioque question was never properly resolved at the fourth council of Constantinople. Um, so, um, so it could be to do with that or it could be some other dispute. It's, it's not completely clear, but anyway, so the, the great schism happens. Um, and uh, now the the emperor I mentioned who um, who uh, originally uh, um, nominated uh, Leo the Ninth um, was uh, Henry the Third, and he died in 1056. So um, immediate uh, what what his he was he was succeeded by his son who was just a kid at the time the um, the king of the Germans Henry the Fourth usually referred to as the emperor Henry the Fourth although actually he was only ever crowned by an anti pope but um, uh, but he, um, uh, uh, so there was a sort of gap as a result. So th there was no imperial supervision of papal elections because um, because the emperor was a kid. But unlike in the previous century, this didn't lead to it, it uh, flipping back to dodgy local Roman aristocrats controlling papal elections. The the Gregorian reform movement had, had progressed enough that the local Roman clergy were controlling papal elections instead. Um, and so that there was a sequence of papal elections in which the, the court in Germany was not consulted about who should become Pope. And, uh, and this slowly began the, uh, the emancipation of the papacy from imperial control. And so nominally, ever since, um, ever since the time of Justinian, uh, the Pope had had to have imperial ratification. The guy elected Pope had, had to have imperial ratification in order to become Pope. That initially meant um, the Byzantine emperors, and then later on these Western Holy Roman emperors. Um, but from this point onwards, uh, the, the, they begin to emancipate themselves from that. Now, they never actually get rid of, absolutely speaking, the imperial veto. Um, 
uh, which is um, that, that if the emperor gets or his representative gets to the conclave in time, they can say, "Oi, we're not having him." Um, uh, so that actually remains in place, and uh, and that's not just an abuse. That the idea is that the temporal ruler of Rome is the emperor, and the temporal ruler in Christendom is the senior ranking representative of the laity. So just like the lay assembled lay faithful in the square, as it were, have a proper role in the election, so too um, uh, some kind of veto or nomination power should exist in the in in the, the lay ruler which in the case of the papacy is the emperor and in fact the last time that veto was used was guess when go on guess i bet you know actually we did us two episodes ago right did we i've forgotten uh, 1903 oh, 1903 was the answer yeah that's right yeah that's what i was thinking <laughs> oh, very good <laughs> Um, so yeah, there was yeah, a Polish. Yeah, Pius the Pius the Tenth. Uh, well, yeah, the, the Secretary of State was vetoed by yes. the Emperor Franz Josef in 1903, and that was the last time. In fact, Pius the Tenth abolished the imperial veto, but um, that was the last time the imperial veto was ever used. Um, so, so they didn't they didn't actually remove the imperial veto altogether. Just like they also didn't remove the the, the role of the lay faithful in the elections, although effectively that's what happened. But. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but they just got on with the elections before the emperor could find out about it, you know. Um, uh, so the so, and this was sort of crystallised by Pope Nicholas II. Lots of popes in this period are the second because, uh, inspired by the reform movement, they like to take the names of, of ancient and holy popes who usually hadn't had a successor with the same name. So so you got loads and loads of the second during the high point of the growing um, reform movement. But um, Pope Nicholas II, uh, he issued this constitution. Uh, he held a synod in the Lateran uh, in 1059, called, uh, it, it issued this constitution called um, In Nomine Domini, uh, which created, uh, well, it restricted the clerical vote in papal elections to the cardinals. Mm-hmm. But the cardinals are supposed to be the Roman clergy. They're supposed to, so like you've got cardinal bishops, cardinal priests, and cardinal deacons, and they're supposed to be uh, the bishops of the diocese around Rome and the parish priests or pastors of the diocese of Rome. And then the, the I think seven, if I remember rightly, I'm wrong, the seven deacons of the Roman church who run the dicasteries, right, which means the diaconal departments of, of, the, um, of the Roman church. Um, and so that's why when somebody becomes a cardinal, they're the cardinal priest of X or the cardinal bishop of Y. You see. Um, so, so they're supposed to be the Roman clergy. Of course, it very unfortunately, relatively rapidly, they become sort of you know little princelings uh, who have nothing to do with the parish church or or very little to do with the parish church that they're supposedly the parish priest of. But um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, so so in order to try and prevent anarchy. Um, and to to prevent um, inappropriate lay interference, this constitution clarifies the, the the clerical role in the papal election as being vested in the cardinals. Um, and um, uh, so, another another big issue uh, which um, which kicks off in this period is the um, the question of. Uh, clerical celibacy mm-hmm. so clerical celibacy has has not been doing very well during this period of anarchy and there's loads of priests who have supposed wives or are living with concubines or whatever and so the the gregorian reformers they're very keen they want to stamp out simony 
They want to stamp out inappropriate lay interference. They want to stamp out clerical marriage. They also, William of Aquitaine, when he founded Cluny, he took the title advocate of Cluny. So meaning that he's not the ruler. He doesn't get to nominate the abbot or anything like that. He's just that he's, he's helpfully defending the interests of Cluny to the rest of the lay world without claiming any kind of power over it. And that, that's how the Gregorian reformers see the role of, of the lay ruler which is to is to be the defender of the of the spiritual power um uh, within that particular part of christendom um now uh the um the problem is that in in the in after the collapse of charlemagne's empire the carolingian empire as it's called um uh europe had, had, had collapsed into this kind of little pockets essentially a sort of a mafia type system of of government where the local hard man either sets up a protection racket because he's an horrible man or because he's a good guy and there's nobody protecting the ordinary peasants he starts protecting them but he needs to be you know provided with produce in kind um so it's either a nasty protection racket or it's a it's a nice protect but it's effectively the same form of organization either way and just like the mafia they kind of organize themselves into this kind of pyramid federations of local hard men with kind of local leaders and then the boss and then the boss of bosses so it's very much in fact um i have a friend who's now a nun and she used to teach medieval history in uh, in a scottish university and she um she used to recommend that her students uh, watch the first two Godfather films in order to understand the nature of feudalism. Because um, so, uh, that's kind of how it works. Um, did they have cannolis in medieval Italian? <laughs> I'm sure they did. Um, and uh, in fact, the opening speech of the first Godfather movie is a really good explanation of feudalism because you've got kind of, I don't know if you remember, it's the guy, I believe in America. It's the, um, uh, the, the uh, undertaker whose daughter is beaten up by the two horrible blokes. Um, and uh, and he, he thought the police and the courts would deal with them and they don't. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so instead he turns in despair to Don Corleone and asks him to to give him justice instead um and that's kind of what you've got going there there's there's the, the objective state which looked like it might revive under charlemagne but doesn't um collapses and so there's no there aren't you know um as the guy in the godfather says uh, no actually uh, don colliani says you know you you had pleased to protect you in courts of law he says that's why you never came to me but but they don't have that you know they do, they don't have have this objective state to protect them in western europe in this this period of anarchy and so they turn to this kind of pyramids of this mafia system pyramids of hard men and one of the problems or difficulties or whatever you want to call it with that is that is that it means that if you own this area right you're the local hard man there and you kind of sort of own the land but the people on the land get to keep the produce they work on it but they give you some of the produce but they're not necessarily allowed to move off the land so the, the ownership of land and actual governance are not properly distinguished okay in this system uh so so you can't really um which which makes it tricky because that then means that because the bishop owns a bunch of land he ends up in this system also kind of being the temporal ruler of that because land ownership and civil power have sort of become the same thing. And you've also got to bear, and the bishops are already very, in a way they ne they almost never were in Byzantium. There are, there are some cases 
the, the patriarch of Alexandria was the governor of, of Egypt at one point, you know, the very low point um, in the history of the Byzantine Empire. But generally, bishops did not exercise temporal power mm-hmm. in, in Byzantium. But in the West, that had become all really, really, really entangled because uh, the bishops were the people who were left behind anyway after everyone else fled in the face every other literate person apart from the bishops and the monks fled in the face of the barbarian invasions so the bishops were already quite powerful a lot of italian towns were kind of ruled by their bishops until they set up their little republics in the way that we were describing um and this becomes even more intractable in in western europe because of the fact that this system where land ownership and political power are sort of the same thing. And also you've got to bear in mind a lot of these people are illiterate. So you don't so when you get land ownership, uh, of course they do have charters and things to witness land ownership, but formal symbolic rituals become a really big deal for um uh showing who owns some land and therefore who is the kind of feudal ruler of that land, because both the rulers and the peasants are, can't really read and write. And you can see, I mean, even back in, in Bede's day, I, th- I believe there's a letter where Bede complains that he found a copy of the Roman canon, which some illiterate priest had thought was a charter uh, for, his, for, his, for the land in his, uh, his parish. And so he'd added to the list of saints the names of local uh, potentates not because he thought they were saints, but because he wanted to make it look as if there'd been an impressive list of witnesses to the charter, right? So, so you know, things, you know, and so one of the one of the structures which is built up uh, as a result of this weird uh, set of circumstances is that if you, if I was in, say, I am the whatever the the count or something or other, and you are the local baron or whatever, and I am investing you with some bit of land or local seigneur and i'm investing you with a bit of land and we're both illiterate so so what happens is 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 this ceremony in which i would like give you something that symbolizes that that bit of land would take place mm-hmm. and that would would that w- wouldn't just be like a nice little frilly extra ceremony that would actually be what meant that you got that land right i don't know if that makes sense yeah, so you can actually see this this happens uh, often on jubilees of current british monarchs there's there's a case where this still happens because of course they're not ever having been a, a definitive kind of overthrow of the monarchy or anything in Britain. Uh, we still have a, there's still quite a lot of this feudal stuff still lurking around, even though it doesn't have much genuine impact, but it's still there. So, so the Corporation of London, uh, which is the guilds that, that that owned London, they were the feudal owners of the city of London, which is like the square mile in the middle of the massive current modern city of of um of london is the old roman city which is where st paul's cathedral and the stock exchange and everything is mm-hmm. and, and that's called the city of london confusingly and and that's actually ruled by the corporation of london which was actually all the guilds um in london and um uh, but it's actually all stockbrokers and bankers now but supposedly they're actually tailors and grocers and things and um and and when the queen goes in there in a really ceremonial way so she, she goes in a big coach to st paul's cathedral um she stops there's this bit if you're walking down uh, i think it's fleet street um uh, there's this there's this bit where you cross over from the city of westminster to the city of london and uh, and, and when the queen crosses there on a ceremonial occasion she stops her coach and the lord mayor of london kneels down next to the next to the door of the coach and the and some some flunky opens the door of the coach and the lord mayor has this 
pearl encrusted sword, which is the token which symbolically invests the Corporation of London with the the land of the city of London from the boss of bosses in in England, who is the the, the Queen, and um, so the Lord Mayor kneels down next to this. This really happens. I, I remember seeing this. Um, I didn't see it in the flesh, saw it on the telly, but but I remember seeing this in the Queen's Golden Jubilee uh, years ago. And um, the Lord Mayor kneels down and he lifts up his pearl encrusted sword to through the door of this coach, and the Queen sort of lifts her hand out and touches the edge of the pearl encrusted sword to indicate that she's he can still keep it and he then takes it back and that shows that she's not she hasn't come to london to try and take it back from the corporation of london uh-huh. huh. so it's a symbolic reenactment of of the investing of uh, of the corporation of london with that bit of chunk of feudal territory of the city of london right so that's a weird survival of this of this custom uh, built into the feudal system which developed in the in the rubble of the carolingian empire so uh now what why, why is this all connected to the first lashing council well the reason why is because um uh in germany um uh the the king the the local rulers were very very powerful and um and they and and the king the german king who was the emperor most of the time was not really able to control them as much as he would like um and uh, but there were also lots and lots and lots of bishops and they were also very very powerful and they had lots and lots of land and he could control the bishops the appointment of the bishops um because the popes weren't doing anything to stop him and it had been going on for years and he basically got to appoint the popes anyway so um so a lot of the power of the emperor as king in germany uh came from the fact that he could at least control the bishops and in fact in the later middle ages there were these seven electors who would elect the king in germany um who would become the emperor mm-hmm. and um and three of the seven were bishops the archbishop of mainz the archbishop of trier and the archbishop of cologne and that reflects how powerful and important the episcopacy was and how vital it was to the strength and the position of the emperor in germany but uh, in order to show that he was giving them this power and that they jolly well were answerable to him uh, this he needed to do something to show that he was making them bishops um, and giving them this land which they had as bishops and so so the equivalent of this pearl encrusted sword uh, for German bishops was the ring and crozier so this ceremony of investiture would occur, uh, which at the time of the uh, uh, appointment of a bishop in Germany, the emperor would stick the, the Episcopal ring on the finger of the candidate and give him his crozier in order to invest him as bishop to show that he was, he'd was he been given all that territory and land and power by the emperor. And that was very important to the emperor and to his position. But to the... Um, but to the Gregorian reform movement, that was absolutely unthinkable and absolutely terrible. And how could that possibly happen? And this was this was simony, basically. This was the, which was the number one thing they were most furious about. This was this was receiving a spiritual office from a temporal ruler. Um, so they were absolutely determined to get rid of this. And uh, it wasn't uh, that that wasn't prominent uh, with with Leo the Ninth, but it, it builds up more and more, especially once Hildebrand himself becomes Pope Gregory the seventh in uh, 1073 so um so uh 
Now, one other thing that, that stirred into the mix here is th this idea about the, the role of the lay ruler as the kind of right hand of the, of the spiritual ruler um, uh, is slowly um, creating this idea of uh, sort of consecrated warfare. So under Pope Alexander II, who's one of these reform popes, in 1066, the Duke of Normandy, who's actually descended, William Duke of Normandy, who's actually descended from one of these Viking pagans um, who trashed the Carolingian Empire, who was bought off with a, in, in uh, 886 or 887 or something like that, was bought off with a chunk of land, which is now called Normandy, the land of the Northmen. Um, so it means the land of the Vikings. Uh, the, the, the Vikings have been besieging Paris, and, and most of them, they managed to get most of them to go away, but one of them, Rollo, wouldn't go away. And uh, so they said, okay, look, Convert to Christianity will give you the territory at the mouth of the Seine River, right? You can have that as yours. You can be Duke of it. As long as you keep out any more of your wretched pagan burning and pillaging cousins from sailing down the Seine. So he's like, okay, I'll do that. So, so he gets baptized and he takes over. So this duchy of Normandy uh, becomes a really big deal because it's, it's the, they're the scary new generation of scary pagan warriors who've now become Christians. Um, and anyway, this William Duke of Normandy, who's his descendant, uh, he wants to claim the throne of England for complicated reasons we haven't got time to go into. But his main rival candidate is this guy, Harold Godwinson. Uh, and he had uh, got shipwrecked off the coast of Normandy a little bit earlier and uh, had sworn an oath on holy relics that when the, that when the reigning king of England, Edward the Confessor, died, that he, Harold, would support William, Duke of Normandy's claim to the throne because Edward the Confessor was so holy that he had a Josephite marriage and didn't have any kids. Mm -hmm. So everybody knew there was going to be a succession crisis when he died. Um, and um, so uh, Harold swears his oath and then uh, instead when William of Nor well, sorry, when Edward the Confessor dies, Harold has himself made king in England and William of Normandy sends off to the Pope and says this isn't fair um, uh, he swore an oath on holy relics it's terrible your holiness you've got to help me out here I'm fighting the cause of rightness and justice and uh, so the so the Pope sends um, the banner of the Roman Church to William of Normandy to show that he's fighting on behalf of the ideals of the Gregorian reform movement in conquering England which he successfully does and there's even a possibility that um, uh, that um, th that banner of the Roman Church, there's some circumstantial evidence to indicate that it was a horizontal red cross on a white background, which is actually to this day the English flag. So, um, so it's uh, it may well be that the English flag is actually the flag of the papacy in the 11th century, but um, uh, you can't absolutely prove that. But there's quite a reasonable amount of circumstantial evidence for that. But anyway, so um, uh, so they've got this idea of. They also, they're trying to, obviously, the lifestyle, we're getting into Godfather Part 3 here, really, the lifestyle of these hard men is not good, right? It's not, not, not a holy lifestyle, right? It involves, you know, machine gunning people down in restaurants and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and you know, what was it Michael Corleone says? I, I, I try to get out, but they, they, they pull me back in or whatever. So <laughs> there's this problem that they have, which is that you're all, they all think they're going to hell. And this is a really big problem. Modern historians are very eloquent on this subject, is that they that the, the aristocracy of, of Western Europe live this lifestyle where you, you have to be this hard, nasty, murdering, mafiosos whatever the singular is um uh, otherwise um otherwise your family's going to get trashed um but how are you going to avoid being damned on that basis um and so they th what they do is they build loads of monasteries and they they can't because see indulgences don't really exist at this point mm -hmm. um uh because they don't have um 
uh, well, yeah, they don't know where they do exist, but they don't exist in the way they do now. You can't just go to the local rosary, local parish and pray the rosary and yay, believe in indulgence. Um, uh, most people are living under the penitential discipline of the church. They're actually supposed to be fasting on bread and water for years yeah. uh, um, every time they commit a murder or commit adultery or whatever. And that's not how, you know, that's not how the mafia lifestyle works. You can't do that. So, so what they do is they found loads of monasteries, hope that the monks are going to pray for them, and then if they get absolved a few seconds before they die, so that so that it doesn't affect the family fortunes. Um, uh, I'm doing this for the family. Exactly, that's <laughs> right. It's not personal; it's strictly business. Um, uh, do you renounce Satan and all his way? I do renounce him. Anyway, uh, so, so um, anyway, so. Um, uh, it's a bit, bit, bit of a scary kind of tightrope act to try and pull that one off. So um, it's great for founding monasteries, though. But, um, but um, so uh, um, now the year before Gregory VII becomes pope, uh, the Byzantine emperor is captured in a horrific defeat called the Battle of Manzikert in 1072. Uh, then they're really, really badly done in by the Turks. And, um, and anarchy ensues and uh, a huge, about half of going on two thirds of Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, which has been the mainstay of the Byzantine Empire for all these centuries, falls into the hands of uh, the Turks. And that's why it's called Turkey to this day, basically because of that battle. Um, and uh, by the end of the century, the Turks are at Nicaea. And Nicaea, if you remember, is opposite Constantinople, basically. It's Newark to Constantinople's New York. Um, and uh, so the um, so so the Byzantines are, are really really in trouble. They they don't like the Latins. They've kind of been in schism with them since the middle of the century. They never liked them anyway. Um, uh, and uh, but now they 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 really got their backs up against the wall. And so the Byzantine emperors start to ask the Westerners for help, and specifically to the popes because they see the popes as the as the leaders of Western Christendom. And um, so both Gregory VII and then later on Urban II receive appeals for help from the Byzantine emperor. And um, and so they they come up with this idea of harnessing uh, the, 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 the ferocious, violent power of the elite of Western Europe and turning it against Islam in the hope that this will uh, earn the everlasting gratitude of the Byzantines and end the Great Schism. So one of the funny things about the Middle Ages is that the popes are able to do so much and they're so powerful in the Middle Ages because the Byzantines have gone into schism and so they're the only patriarch left in town. So so the, the distinction between the patriarchal power of the pope and his power as universal uh, pastor are, is kind of obliterated by the fact that, that the that the rump of the church which is nonetheless bigger than the rest of it um is the, now the roman patriarchate um uh, but the but on the other hand the popes are painfully aware throughout the middle ages that this is deeply inappropriate and that they ought to have the greeks all back in communion with them and that it undermines you know the the nature of the church and the and and so they're desperate to end the Great Schism, but ironically, it's the Great Schism, which is why they're so immensely powerful, because they don't have, whereas previously their power had been greatly mitigated by the fact that they didn't want to annoy the emperors and they didn't want to drive the other patriarchs into schism by throwing their weight around too much. Mm -hmm. Uh, after 1054, they, they've they've lost the other guys anyway, so you know they've got nothing to lose. So that that's why the Pope's so powerful, and yet they're desperate to end the situation, which is why they invent the idea of the Crusade. Now, um, so uh, but. 
Gregory the Seventh, cutting back to Gregory the Seventh, in uh, in 1074, he he does, he makes a declaration basically saying that there's already very bad relations between the emperor and the papacy because the emperors are being muscled out at the papal elections, which they're very annoyed about, and there've been several anti-popes arising as a result of that. And but now Gregory the Seventh says. Uh, it's absolutely forbidden, it's a heresy, it's wicked for a lay ruler to be investing a bishop with crozier and ring. And uh, and, and the and the um the emperors see this as like a, a vicious attack on their power base. It's like a like a mortal fight now with the papacy. And it caused this huge thing called the investiture controversy, and it causes Gregory the Seventh to um eventually he excommunicates and declares deposed the Emperor Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth declares Gregory the Seventh deposed and tries to create his own anti-pope. Um, and so you've got a full and no pope had ever before. Now, as we've spoken about in the past, it's built into the logic of what happened in the in the coronation of 800 mm -hmm. that ultimately the pope trumps the emperor mm -hmm. and he can make the emperor so by implication he can unmake the emperor but no one's ever said that before but gregory the seventh goes out and says it he says oh you can't do that i don't care how important it is to the structure of your own kingdom you're not investing bishops with ring and crozier that's a spiritual power this is simony it's a heresy stop it and if you don't stop it, I'm going to excommunicate you. And if I excommunicate you, you're not part of Christian society, so you're no longer the emperor, because you can't be the ruler of Christian society if you're not part of Christian society. So and he issues this document called the Dictatus Parpe, which is absolutely kind of, you know, I think he was on something when he wrote it. I mean, it's the most shouty declaration of papal authority that's really probably ever been issued. And it's like, it's got these amazing, it's like a list of really shouty statements. And it's got these things in like, of the Roman pontiff shall all princes kiss the feet. And uh, and the Roman pontiff is undoubtedly made a saint by the merits of St. Peter. Obviously, he'd forgotten about those popes in the previous century. Um, and uh, and well, he may have meant just for the second that he becomes pope and then he can return to his former ways. But, um, uh, and, and uh, you know, and he says that the, the Roman pontiff can, it explicitly says in the Dictatus Parvi, the Roman pontiff can depose emperors, right? So, so I mean, it's, it's really, you know, um uh so um this causes a huge um uh kind of in sort of spiritual civil war in christendom which famously climaxes with the emperor being excommunicated and deposed and having to kneel in the snow for three days outside the castle where the pope is then residing at canossa begging him to absolve him uh the Pope, which sort of does, is kind of a great moment of triumph, but it's also kind of a semi-pyrrhic victory because the Pope knows that he's not as sincere, not sincere at all. So, and sure enough, as soon as he's absolved, he starts back to his old naughty ways. Uh, and Gregory the Seventh dies in exile, but you know he's a saint, so it's okay. Um, and um, uh, and then uh, his successor, but one Urban the Second, who's still fighting, fighting out with Greg with um, Henry the Fourth, he um, he gets this appeal from the Byzantine Emperor Alexius the First Comnenus, please save us from the Muslims. So he then says uh, in um, I think it's November, um, uh, let's get it right, November um, ten ninety six, uh, the Council of Clermont, uh, he um, he announces that he's going to. Um, uh, that, that he's going to grant a plenary indulgence, which solves this problem, this this mafiosi problem, uh, for all um, for all. Uh, uh, well, he says any any anyone who swears to liberate Jerusalem from the Muslims or die in the attempt uh, can receive this kind of sort of plenary indulgence on steroids, basically. So. 
uh, not only is it a plenary indulgence, but it substitutes for all penance that you might be given in confession. So normally, if you get a plenary indulgence nowadays, you do your penance, and then you still got loads of extra time in purgatory because you, you, the priest was supposed to give you 15 years fasting on bread and water, mm-hmm. and instead he gave you 10 Hail Marys. So, uh, so there's a bit of a gap there, which is going to translate into thousands of years in purgatory. So you get you get the um, you get the plenary indulgence, but you have to do the 10 Hail Marys. Mm-hmm. But of course, the 10 Hail Marys back in the 11th century meant meant 10 years fasting on bread and water or found 50 monasteries or whatever um so the uh, so it was a bit more serious and um so uh, but this crusading indulgence you just said i've taken the cross meaning I've, I've sworn to undertake the crusade and um and that then substitutes for that for, for your penance in confession as well as any anything else on top so so they go nuts they famously they all shout so start chanting deus lo volt god wills it uh, the council of claremont and uh, and and somebody says this, this is a new way of going to heaven and basically what it means is we get to we get to go to heaven by killing people which is what we're actually good at instead of fasting <laughs> on bread and water for 15 years is. um uh, so the um so so that the aristocracy of europe are like yes um so there's this massive and so there used to be like in the early part of the 20th century various kind of brain dead rationalist historians used to say that this was oh it was all younger sons who wanted to get themselves a plot of land in palestine or something that's all complete rubbish these people bankrupted a they weren't younger sons b they bankrupted themselves to go on these crusades they were not in their interest in a temporal sense at all they did it because it was suddenly was a new way of going to heaven so suddenly the the, but the Pope's in a massive dispute with the King of France and still with uh, the Emperor Henry IV when the First Crusade happens. So it's all the next rank of people who are the backbone of the, of the First Crusade. They're all like dukes and counts and things. They're not, uh, they're not kings and emperors. So it's very, so that makes it really clear that it's the Pope's army that's going to to try and liberate Jerusalem. Hmm. And absolutely amazingly and obviously we don't have time to describe the first crusade which is an absolutely amazing story but it would take much too long um uh, but but it succeeds which no one imagined at all so in july 1099 they take jerusalem against all the odds it's an absolutely incredible story but the but the but the pope's secret agenda or, or semi-secret agenda which was to win back the byzantines by making them incredibly grateful for having been rescued from the muslims um uh doesn't work because um although it's it works to start with they all go over to constantinople and they slowly get there and the emperor alexis Comnenus, a bit shocked he thought he'd like a small band of mercenaries was coming not thousands of frankish warriors or norman warriors um unwashed uh, in and you know inebriated and extremely violent but he thinks okay will try and work with this so he gets them to swear an oath that they any roman territory which they liberate from islam they will restore to him now in fact that basically means any territory they get because any territory they could possibly have any interest in or any chance of, of capturing at one time was in the roman empire so so it's a pretty good deal so they get nicaea back and then they, they fight their way against all the odds across asia minor and then they get to antioch one of the patriarchal seas and the first city for where where the followers of our lord were called christians mm-hmm. and they're besieging antioch and it's looking a bit desperate and they can't properly encircle it and it and it looks like they're going to be done in and then they hear that there's a huge muslim relief army coming to attack them and because uh, initially they'd done quite well because nobody expected people to turn up like this out of the blue and so they 
caught the Muslim rulers on the hop. But by the time they got to Antioch, they were like, hang on, this is looking a bit dangerous. So the ruler of Mosul sends uh, quite a big army to go and take them out while they're besieging Antioch. And the siege is not as good as it might be because they can't encircle Antioch very easily. And um, so it looks like they're doomed. And one of the crusaders called Stephen of Blois decides to run away effectively. And, um, and, and while he, it's a, well, so let's leave Stephen of Blois running away. And uh, and while the then one of the crusaders, who's a Norman called Bohemond, manages to get them inside, there's clever moves, he gets them inside Antioch just in time before the relief army arrives. And then they, they apparently, supposedly discover the relic of the, of the Holy Lance and they get very excited. Uh, but they decide they can't stay in Antioch because all the food's been eaten by the people in Antioch while they were besieging them themselves. There's this huge relief army outside. So they decide to do the kind of desperate... Um, you know, it's you know, it's a million to one chance, Captain, but I just make work sort of uh, manoeuvre, and um, and they charge out of Antioch, and they win this incredible victory and destroy this Muslim army, and uh, and with holding the holy lance in front of them, and they're like they're you know it's amazing, and they're completely pumped up after this, and uh, but meanwhile, naughty Stephen of Blois run away. And while he's running away, he bumps into the emperor, Alexius Comnenus, who's coming with a big Roman army uh, to, to help deliver the crusaders in their moment of need, which is great. This is exactly the sort of thing that uh, Urban II was hoping for. You know, they're all going to become pals on the battlefield and the great schism will end and all that kind of thing. And uh, But instead, Stephen of Blois sees Alexius. I don't know whether he genuinely thinks the Crusaders are probably already dead or he doesn't kind of really want the Crusaders to be rescued by Alexius because that will make him look terrible. So he tells Alexius, look, there's no point. There's a huge army coming. It's probably already arrived. They're almost certainly dead. If you go there now, you'll just get killed as well, and it'll be a catastrophe. You've really just got to go home. And Alexius buys this and goes home. And basically, Stephen of Blois is responsible for the fact that the Orthodox Church is in existence and is not part of the Catholic Church. Because um, if, if Alexius just carried on, and if, if he'd gone with the Crusaders from Antioch to Jerusalem and they'd stormed Jerusalem with the emperor from Constantinople, there'd be no great schism there. Everyone would be pals and it would be marvellous. Instead, the Crusaders are like renounced their vows that they made to the emperor. They're like, the scumbag abandoned us and then God saved us with the Holy Lance. And that shows that Greeks are evil, treacherous gits and, Latin, and God loves the Latins. And um, so... so and. So the, the Greeks don't, you know, the Greeks are not, the Byzantines, the Romans, are not um, are not as enthusiastic about the liberation of Jerusalem as they might be because their role in the story is not particularly edifying. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the Latins have decided that the Byzantines are utterly perfidious. And so, so in the end, catastrophically, the Crusades become this kind of running sore of hostility between the Latins and the Byzantines instead of being the means of reconciliation climaxing with the Fourth Crusade going rogue and sacking Constantinople. But anyway, we haven't got time to talk about that. But um, uh, so anyway, so these are the different institutions you've got going right. You've got the, you, the, the, you've got to have freedom of election, universal papal jurisdiction, religious orders, the Crusades, and connected to the Crusades, this new ideal of chivalry that you shouldn't attack non-combatants and that you shouldn't fight on holy days. And, all, and this is all part of the package of the Gregorian reform movement. And 
And when Western Europe hears about the fact that Jerusalem has been liberated by the crusade, which is very much, as I say, because there's no kings or emperors involved, um, uh, it's very much seen as the Pope's army. So it's the ultimate vindication of the Gregorian reform movement. Uh, and and, and it famously, it's described by a contemporary as the greatest event since the resurrection. So people are going absolutely nuts um, uh, when, when, when Jerusalem is liberated. So it's the, it's the total vindication of the Gregorian reform movement. I mean, the Pope has definitively won the propaganda battle. Poor old Urban II, well, he, he has the better vision because he's blessed Urban II, but he doesn't, he doesn't find out um, uh, while he's alive that, that Jerusalem's been liberated, because although it is, he is still alive when it's liberated, news does not reach Rome until he's already dead. But, so it looks like it's all going to be a great big happy ending, but uh, there's a kind of um, sort of scourging of the Shire um, uh, little um, damp squib beforehand because um, uh, Urban II is succeeded by uh, Pascal II. Mm -hmm. And Pascal II doesn't have the kind of balls of steel of Urban II and, and Gregory VII. Um, and um, he, uh, the, he, he kind of backs the son, the son of, uh, of Henry IV is quarreling with his father. Uh, and um, and is so he's pretending to be on the side of the popes in, in the hope of stealing the imperial title from his dad. This is uh, the Emperor Henry V. And uh, he manages to get his father definitively deposed just a year before his father dies in 1105. And, uh, and he gets himself elected emperor. And, um, and, and so it's all looking good because he's made lots of nice promises to the popes in order to... Uh, in order to um, uh, pull this maneuver off but as soon as he's in situ in control of the german kingdom he's he's he loses all interest in in the gregorian reform movement and he's like oh yeah i want to control the bishops because otherwise how am i going to control the kingdom so he completely he turns out to be utterly treacherous and um and then in 1111 he goes down to rome itself to uh, be crowned by Pascal II, and uh, and Pascal II kind of panics because uh, Henry V is is a real bully, and um, and so he offers this slightly crazy deal, sort of idealistic, but misconceived deal, whereby if Henry V uh, renounces the right of investiture completely, he will hand over to Henry V all the temporal power and wealth of the, of the church in the whole of Germany. Um, but I mean, that, that will basically place, so it's all very idealistic, basically turn the, um, the whole of the German church into observant Franciscans. But, uh, but that's not really going to work. And, um, and all it'll really mean is it'll turn the German church into the Church of England. Um, and, uh, and they'll just be completely in the power of the emperor. And, um, and so the, uh, the Roman population are not happy about this. They see this as a stupid, short-sighted thing, and they start rioting. And in the course of the rioting, which, is, which uh, uh, mars the coronation of, um, of Henry V, um, uh, Henry V kidnaps Pascal II and bullies him into uh, agreeing to allow the right of lay investiture of bishops. So he's not only conceded the loss of all the temporals, but now he's allowed the thing that it was supposed to be for. And this causes a huge row, lots of people all over Europe accusing the Pope of heresy. So, so um, Pascal II is actually ends up as one of those popes who, who's, been accused, who's been accused of heresy historically. And, um, and he's denounced famously... Um, uh, Saint Bruno, uh, the abbot of not not the Carthusian Bruno, Saint Bruno, the abbot of Monte Cassino, um, uh, denounces him uh, as as 
as a heretic for having accepted lay investiture and various local bishops and synods and things denounce him and eventually he he wants the um although he swore an oath not to excommunicate Henry V, um, uh, once Henry V leaves Italy, um, uh, Pascal II sheepishly denounces the deal that he struck. So, um, which of course renews the great quarrel with the papacy um, until finally in 1122, uh, with the help of the great canonist, St. Ivo of Chartres. Uh, it's worked out that um, and also because they've struck similar deals to avoid these kind of problems with the French king and the English king. Uh, they work out this deal whereby there will be a ceremony that doesn't involve the ring and the crozier by which the emperor will be shown to have invested the uh, bishops in Germany with their temporal uh, powers and lands, mm -hmm. but not with the office of being a bishop. Um, and then uh, the and the election will be free, uh, but will take place in the presence of the emperor so that he can kind of, you know, exercise a certain amount of influence by raising an eyebrow or scratching a head when different candidates are being discussed, but technically it'll be free. Um, and the actual liturgical act of uh, investing the bishop will not involve any kind of lay ruler. So they basically work out this deal between Pope Calixtus II and the Emperor Henry V. And um, and this is called the Concordat of Worms, or Worms, it's written, uh, but Worms, it's pronounced. And, um, and so at that point, so the popes have kind of won. Um, there's still going to be lots of fighting, but they, they've kind of won all their things in principle. They've got the First Crusade, liberated Jerusalem. They've established the Code of Chivalry. They've... They've uh, established the principle of universal papal jurisdiction. Um, uh, they, they've tamed the emperors to some extent, and they've they've got rid of lay investiture, and so they do the ultimate, as it were, declaration of papal supremacy, which is they summon an ecumenical council off their own bat, with no reference to either the, the either the emperor in Constantinople or the emperor the or the emperor Henry V, and uh, and they, they the council meets in the Lateran Basilica, which is the Cathedral of Rome and the residence of the popes at this time and for most of papal history until the Avignon papacy. Um, uh, and, um, and so that is the first Lateran Council. There's about 300 bishops there. And basically they issue 22 or so canons. There's some dispute about the, uh, about the numbers, different manuscript traditions. But uh, those canons essentially set in disciplinary ecumenical stone all of those ideals, the truth of the truce of God, the principle that you don't fight on holy days, the peace of God, the principle that you don't attack non-combatants, the crusade, uh, the celibacy of the clergy, uh, the, 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 the indulgence, the crusading indulgence and the, um, and this resolution to the investiture controversy. So that, so all those ideals of the Gregorian reform movement, which is really what the, the papacy that, 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 has existed as an institution uh, since that time, since since the Gregorian reform movement, is this is is created the papacy that we live under now, 
um, as it were, is, is a creation of the Gregorian reform movement, um, as opposed to the papers, the much more limited and, and cautious papacy of the first millennium. This, this imperial papacy of the second millennium is very much created in the fires of the Gregorian reform movement by the opportunity given by the Great Schism, despite their, their desperation to end the Great Schism. They're able to, to achieve these ideals because of it, and they, it, it's the very fact that they hold an ecumenical council shows the, 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 the plenitude of papal power that, that, that they understand themselves to have. And they, they canonize those ideals in the, in the disciplinary canons. There aren't any dogmatic canons. The disciplinary canons of the First Lateran Council. And, um, and the, uh, the Easterners had developed this idea of the Pentarchy, that in order to have a proper ecumenical council, you needed the five patriarchs of Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. But that idea was made up by the Emperor Justinian, basically. Um, uh, the, this, uh, at the time of Nicaea, there were only three patriarchies. The term itself is, is quite late, but the, uh, the idea, there were three of these super bishops of the Council of Nicaea, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Constantinople just stole the title because they were the imperial capital, and Jerusalem managed to get it in kind of bargaining around the the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon they not they they sold their support for the winning side in exchange for being declared to be a patriarchate so so that I mean the pentarchy supposed pentarchy is an invention of the late fifth century or the mid fifth century um and uh, yeah and so so but the the Byzantines had kind of held on to it as a kind of way of weakening the power of the papacy but the popes are saying yeah pentarchy yeah we're not really bothered basically it's all about popes and bishops and and being a patriarch is just bells and whistles what really matters is or bishop and, and an ecumenical council is when we summon all the bishops to a big council in our church and we tell you what you're going to do and then you vote for it and you have a nice little cocktail party afterwards um and and so that's that that model the imperial papacy um uh, which is more uh, has more is more defensible than than the idea of this supposed pentarchy um, uh, is is basically comes into existence as the climax of this opening stage of the Gregorian reform movement. Really, it's the climax of the Gregorian reform movement. From that point onwards, from two twenty three onwards, the me the high medieval papacy is defending that ideal rather than establishing it. It has been definitively established with the uh, with the acts of the first Lateran Council. So you are. Oh, wow. Lateran one. Well, very good. Well, Doc, we'll see you next time for what's next? Uh, Lateran two, probably three and we'll probably do two, three and four because otherwise uh, it'll get too complicated. <laughs> we don't want that now, do we? No. <laughs> Doc, as always, appreciate it. We'll talk to you then. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.